Hi, everybody. I'm Sam Eakin, and I'm an alcoholic. And to uh, let you know, I'm uh, sober by a grace of God. And my sobriety date is September 1st, 1989. And I have a sponsor. And she says hello to everybody. And I have a home group. My home group is the Keystone Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. We meet on Sunday night in Richmond, Virginia at a psych ward. And a lot of you have been there to speak. And um, I'm, I went to treatment there. Um, and um, I have, um, besides a sponsor, I am a sponsor, and it puts me right in the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to thank the committee for asking me to come here. I am your correction speaker. Um, if you notice on the brochure, um, I, I am not Tammy. I am Sammy. But um, <laughs> sorry, Tammy. Um, but I am, it is an honor and a privilege, and I want to thank you so much for hosting me. It's really, really been a great week, and I love this. I love being treated like a queen, and I know that, Olivia, you are my queen, but um, it is being treated so nice. Um, I'll tell you, I've come a long way. I, I've come a long way. I am not the person I came to you 17 years ago. Um, it's truly, truly by the grace of God. Uh, it's going to sound like I've been bragging a lot up here, but I want to thank Alcott's Anonymous for giving me this life. I really do. I, I, it sounds like I'm bragging, but I have a lot. I have a lot today. I have a lot of enthusiasm because I am just so darn grateful. I, I wouldn't trade anything for this family that I have today. It talks about being rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence. Well, I'm up here to tell you about my first three dimensions first. I have a couple of dimensions before I got here. <laughs> they were a little warped, but they were dimensions. Um, what I was like and what happened to me and, and what I'm like today, and, and it's truly been rocketed. And, um, you know, um, let me tell you about my starter set, my family. My, this was my starter set because truly you are my family today. Um, I was born in 1951. I'll just get that out. I'm 56. And, and I heard her speaker say, uh, Celeste said that she had a problem with that. I shouldn't be here. You know, I should be dead. So, you know, being 56 is just, you know, I just celebrated a birthday. And I'm so glad to be here because I shouldn't be here. And so I'm, I'm happy to be here today. But um, I'm 56 years old. I got sober when I was 38 years old. And, you know, I came to you and I heard Bill Wilson was 38 years old. And I went, we're just like this. We have so much in common. <laughs> you know, I thought, you know, I identified, you know. I mean, I, I grabbed onto everything. I went, yeah, that was a good time to get sober. Um, but um, I was born in Petersburg. I was born into a nice Jewish family. I was the youngest of six. When I got here, I thought that my problem was my family. I thought they were the problem. And, you know, a couple of years later, you know, I found out that <laughs> they had nothing to do. They really had nothing to do with, you know, my alcoholism. My family weren't drinkers. Um, when I, you know, growing up, I've always felt like I was never enough. I just felt that way. I don't know where it came from. I felt fearful as a kid. You know, my sisters and brothers, you know, they just looked different. They acted different. I, I wanted what they had. 
You know, I, um, I wanted approval from them. I did anything I could to get approval from my older brothers and sisters. And um, I almost died trying to get their approval. I was a liar, a thief, and a cheat from the very beginning. I don't know why my personality took on that, but it just did. I always felt inadequate. Um, I um, was talking with Kay. Kay and I identify with each other. I'm very competitive. When I got sober, I wanted to be the first one in my group to have a spiritual awakening. You know, I was, I'm very competitive, Kay, very competitive. And um, so I, you know, I just, I, I just did everything I could as a kid. Just, I just felt fear. I don't know where it came from, but I was a fearful kid. And um, my sisters and brothers, they all made straight A's. I didn't. I mean, they were, when they graduated school, they all went to college, and I did not. Um, they were just straight-A students, and I wasn't. I don't know why I didn't excel in anything. The only thing I excelled in was in sports, and I, I love sports. I, I have a passion for sports, and just like I have a, I understand passion because I have a passion for Alcoholics Anonymous today, so I understand that. But um, I didn't excel in anything ex except for that. When I went to school, uh, all I did was, you know, I took my first drink when I was 15 years old. And all those things that we hear about, all those angst that we had, and all those things that I felt at ease with, and, and I couldn't look anybody in the eye. I was just felt so uneasy with myself. My first drink gave me that at ease. I felt at ease when I took that drink. So alcohol did for me what I couldn't do for myself. And I felt that I could now be around you. I felt like I could look you in the eye. I felt a new happiness, a new peace. And um, now I didn't become an alcoholic overnight. I drank for 23 years. Now, in that 23 years, I'm going to share with you some of the highlights of my 23 years. And, and that's just it. I didn't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to be an alcoholic. I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I didn't know I was an alcoholic. In Chapter 3 in our big book, it talks about different types of people coming into AA. Some people know they are. Some people know. Some people have no idea that they're powerless over alcohol. I was one of those people. I thought I was mentally ill, but I had no idea that I was powerless over alcohol. So in that 23 years, when I was, um, um, so I started drinking, and um, I truly drank alcoholically from the very beginning, though. I remember on the high holidays or, you know, when I'm Jewish, so we drank Manischewitz wine. <laughs> It's disgusting. <laughs> now, no one in my family uh, is an alcoholic or drinker, so we would have the wine at the tables, and um, for some reason, everybody would leave the table, and I would be, you know, going around <laughs> drinking this Manischewitz wine. But I was, now, I was a closet drinker, too. I carried a lot of shame. I was a loner as a drinker because, see, I didn't see other people drinking like I did. So I carried that in my drinking career, too. 
But um, at the age of um, 18, I graduated high school. I don't know how. You know, I think my father bought my degree. I'm not sure. But I uh, graduated high school, and I moved up to Washington, D.C. And um, I didn't go to college. Everybody in my family, you know, all my brothers are doctors and lawyers. You know, they all went to, you know, graduate school. They all, you know, they all went out and did something big. And, see, I needed to do something, you know. So I became a histologist. Now, that's working in a lab. I was just a technician. But, see, I needed a title. See, I thought that that made me something. I had to be somebody. I had to be somebody. I needed a title. So I worked up at Washington Hospital Center, and um, I worked up at Walter Reed, and then I went over to NIH. But um, all I was was a, a technician, but I had a title, and, and I was somebody. So um, I, w I lived up in D.C., and D.C. was the fast lane. Man, I loved it up there. I started drinking, and uh, drinking became an important part of my life. I, um, but I drank closetly. I just drank alone. I didn't want anybody to see how I drank or how much I drank. Now, I didn't know this consciously. I would drink some and then go out with my friends. And I would, um, I just didn't want anybody to see that I was drinking. Um, in the hospital, they, um, I didn't, I never got in trouble. I would always go to work. Um, it never affected my job at first. Um, at the age of 23, I decided that I needed to get married because everybody in my family got married at the age of 21. And back, the, back then, you know, and I heard a speaker say this, um, I think Alan said this, um, you know, getting married makes you stable. You know, it's a, it's a, it's And everybody in my family at the age of 21, it was just the thing to do. So at the age of 23, I said, man, i got to get married. You know, I, I need to do this because my family's on me, and, you know, I'm, I don't want to be an old maid, and, you know, I need to pick out this somebody. So I picked out this. I did this with my thinking. You know, I'm already drinking, and I'm already drinking alcoholically, but I don't know this um, consciously. And um, so I picked out this perfect specimen. I picked out a nice Jewish doctor. I said, my, my family will like it. You know, he'll be married to his profession, and I can do whatever I want. You know, and um, so on November 9th, 1974, my family in Norfolk, I grew up in Norfolk, um, Virginia, it was a big big wedding in a synagogue. Um, I don't remember the details. <laughs> now, Jewish weddings are big. They're expensive. My mom had, I think I had seven bridesmaids. I know I had a lot of showers. I attended them. I, I just, you know, my mom took care of everything. And I know that morning my girlfriend picked me up. I started drinking that morning. Now, I was a throw-up drinker. I, I'm not ashamed to say it. Um, every hour on the hour, I know that we had to pull off the side of the road, and I'd start throwing up. And my girlfriend looked over, and, you know, she said, Sammy, you know you don't have to do this. And I said, yes, I do. i got to do this. You know, I'm in it. I'm in it. And so I was the last one to show up to the, to the temple. 
I drank a fifth of vodka and I took four quaaludes. <laughs> now, and I was feeling okay. I was okay. Now, I would have married anybody standing beside me, but I was okay. I, mar I was married for three weeks. Now, this is what happened. Well, I won't go too deep into it, but this is the type of person that I was. I saw somebody else come by that I liked better. And that's the kind of person I was. But what I did to get out of it, because I like getting out of things, I was a good liar. I was a good liar. What I said is I lied so much about that guy that my parents were glad that I got rid of him. He had nothing to do with it. He was just in my way. He was just in my way. That was just another day in Sammy's life. This was when I was 23 years old. I was just starting because I didn't get sober till I was 38. So that was just another day in my life. So, um, so I continue on, you know, my, you know, it's just another thing in my life. And, uh, at the age of 28 years old, I'm working up at NIH at this time and, and, um, I'm not doing too well, but, um, I get sick. I get sick and, I, and the reason I bring this up, there's a couple of reasons, but I get sick with, um, multiple sclerosis and, um, and I'm not doing well. I'm, uh, I'm, I end up in a wheelchair, and I, I was in a wheelchair for like a year, and I go blind, and I'm not handling it well. Not to say anybody else wouldn't handle it any better, but as an alcoholic, I turned to alcohol like I turned to everything else. And I'm drinking, and um, that's exactly the way I handle it. I drink more. And um, as you can see, I'm doing well by the grace of God. I, I truly am doing well. And... Um, but that's how I handle it. Now, my family doesn't handle that well. My family is ashamed of that. And they're also, you can imagine how they handle my alcoholism. But, um, and um, I am now put on disability. Now, the reason I bring up the MS is because the, the government now puts me on disability. And they give me a check every month. And the reason I bring this up, because I want to let you all know I was never self-supporting through my own contributions. That disability check paid my rent because if it wasn't for that check, I would have been living under a bridge. Because by the time I got to you people, I could not support myself whatsoever. Um, after that year I got out of, a, uh, out of the wheelchair, I mean, I started traveling. I was feeling sorry for myself. I was drinking, and um, I was moving from place to place. I... Um, started going in and out of people like they were. I was just using people left and right. I was one of those drunks that just went in and out of people's lives. I just didn't care. I didn't care about you. I didn't care about me. Um, I started using up my family. My, um, my dad had gotten sick. My dad had gotten sick with um, mesothelioma, lung cancer. And... Um, what he did is um, they put him in MD Anderson in Texas. And I volunteered because I wasn't working. 
and um, all my sisters and brothers you know, had kids, and they had, you know, families, and they had jobs, you know, they were all doctors and lawyers and Indian chiefs. And uh, they were, you know, these important people, and I wasn't working. And um, so I volunteered to go help my dad down at, and they sent him to M.D. Anderson, because I wanted to be a good daughter. I wanted to be a good sister, and I wanted to be just a good human being. I just didn't have the skills to do it. So I go down to M.D. Anderson to help my dad, and my dad is dying. And uh, I go down there, and I'm getting irritable, restless, and discontent. But I don't know that. You know, and I go out to have one drink. Now, I'm living in the room with him because that's the protocol that you do. And I'm in full-blown alcoholism. And I go out to have that one drink. Just I'm going out just to have one. You know, Houston's got a lot of bars. So I go out to have that one drink, and I come back to his room three days later. And my dad, who can't even talk because he's aphasic, and he looks at me with that look. And he says, where have you, you know, that look, where have you been? What are you doing? You're supposed to be here helping me. And I don't know about y'all, but I don't know what to do with that look. I can't take it, you know. And the only thing that I can do with that look is I go have another drink. Because I can't take it. So I go and I, I have another drink. And I go back and... Two days later, I go back, come back to the room, and the same thing happens. And the nurse comes, gets, gets me one day, and she says, you know, Sammy, your dad's not going to make it. We're going to have to call your family. And my family's all over the United States. They're all doing their thing, you know. And I, oh, my God, I can't see my family. You know, fear, 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 fear comes in me. You know, I can't see my family. They can't see the condition my condition's in. So I, I take off, and my family, and, and my dad dies. And that's what alcoholism does to a person like me. I don't even get to say goodbye to my dad, because I'm in too much fear. So I go to my dad's funeral, and I'm, what am I doing? I'm drunk. I'm drunk at my dad's funeral. So, you know, my, my family's disgusted with me. They're disgusted. So, you know, I... Um, I decided to, you know, stay and help my mom in Norfolk because she's there now by herself. I volunteer because I want to be a good daughter. I want to be a good sister. I just want to be a doggone good person. See, I really do. I have it in me. I want to be that person. I just don't have the skills. I just don't have it. So um, I stay in Norfolk, and the same thing happens. You know, there's a place called Military Circle, and they have this place called Bennigan's. And I go golfing every single day at Kempsville, Lake Wright. I'm out at, you know, with my girlfriends playing golf. And I go to Bennigan's at night drinking Long Island iced teas, blue ones. I don't care what color they are. You know, I'm there every single night drinking. And I come home. Sometimes I don't. You know, and I'm thinking that I'm, you know, helping my mother. And my mom does the same thing to me. You know, what are you doing? You're supposed to be helping me. So I leave my mom, too. And um, 
You know, I'm, I'm just, you know, not being of service whatsoever. Um, my mom is now shipping me everywhere. I, I get shipped to my brothers, you know. My brother sends me back, you know. And um, finally I just take off. I'm a mover, you know. I'm, I'm traveling everywhere. I'm going from city to city, and I'm just trying to go wherever I can to stay wherever I can with anybody that I can. And I'm just running in and out of everybody's life. I, uh, I have moved. I've been in New York. I've been to Bryn Mawr. I lived on the main line. Um, I've been engaged to a few, a few times. I don't know their names, you know. Um, and I'm sure that they were a lot of fun. Um, and, and I mean that. I, I've met a lot of good people. A lot of people did, did care about me, you know. The thing of it is, is I didn't take the time to care about anybody. I got to the point where I was just really, really only cared about myself and what I could get from other people. At one point, I had gotten to a place where um, I decided that I was going to move and help one of my sisters in um, Florida. And uh, she had the money and I had the time. And uh, I end up in Florida, in Naples, Florida. And... Um, what a pretty place Naples was. I didn't see much of it. Um, I saw uh, one part. Um, we lived on this golf course. It was like a paradise place for me. And I, and I really wanted to be a good sister to, to, to my sister. I wanted to help her out. And I, and I didn't. What I did is I helped her out of her money. And one night, um, what I did is I packed up all my belongings. I didn't even leave her a note, and I just left her in the middle of the night, which I've done so many times to so many people. And, um, and I just um, and I left. And that's how I ended up in Richmond, Virginia. And um, there's a lot of funny stories on the way. You know, I, um, I, my sponsor made me write down some of my humiliating experiences. And... Um, you know, there's a lot of times that I was so drunk that I was in uh, Applejack, New Jersey one time. I think there's a place called Applejack, New Jersey. I th or I think that was the um, Applejack um, schnapps. I had a schnapps period. Don't ever do this. If you're thinking about relapsing, don't do this. Um, <laughs> Stu, it's your fault. You're telling these stories. Um, <laughs> I went through different periods of time where I drank different things. I was uh, uh, in New Jersey, and I got turned on to schnapps. And I like shooters for some reason. You know, it's quicker. And um, so someone turned me on to schnapps, and I was drinking them. I was like, this stuff is good. And I was sitting down. The problem with schnapps is you don't stand up. That's the key. You can drink them, but don't stand up. Well, I had gotten there on a motorcycle yeah, that's what I was engaged to, a guy with a motorcycle. That's right. And um, so we got there on a motorcycle, but we left. They, they took duct tape, and they duct taped me to him on that motorcycle. That's how we had to get home. Fun trip. He was the guy from the main line. That's right. But um, one time I woke up on the beach. You talk about a whale. I uh, woke up on the beach at Virginia Beach. It was noon. With beachers, you know, bathing all around me, it was noon, you know, when you just wake up and you, like, dust yourself off and you're like, oh, like nothing happened, you know. <laughs> you 
take your little suitcase and you just move on, you know? And you're supposed to be embarrassed over these things, but we don't. We just like, oh, oh, well. You know, I wake up next to a Chinese family, you know, like, hey. So, um, embarrassing moments. So I'm, I'm leaving Naples, Florida, and um, I don't even tell my sister I'm leaving her. You know, I, I just leave. And because I had done just too many things to her that I just can't even face her anymore. And um, I end up in Richmond, Virginia. I had one more sister left. And see, that's what happens when you have a large family. I just used everybody up. By the time I got to Richmond, I had one more sister left. And... Um, and she owned a bar. And uh, she also was a uh, crystal meth addict. Now, you take an alcoholic and a crystal meth addict, and you put them together, and you got a blast that will last. <laughs> and for two years, I didn't see the sun. I drank continuously for two years. You know, uh, you know, I hear alcoholics get up and they say they didn't, you know, they drank continuously for years. I didn't think it was possible, you know, but you add a little crank or the, whatever, you, you know, the crystal meth. I drank for two years, you know, and I was, you know, always been a hefty young lady. I weighed 100 pounds by the time I left that woman. I tell you what, I was this thin, but I couldn't appreciate it because I couldn't go outside. I couldn't see the sun. It was like I was, it was like the devil got into me. I drank continuously for two years. My sister and I, I tell you, we were toxic, and that blew up. It was just a mess. I did a lot of illegal things, and it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I tell you, we laugh at the worst things, don't we? But I will tell you, I mean, I had blackouts, I had brownouts, I had greenouts, I was drinking everything I had drank. I would set people up after the bar closed. I wanted everybody to drink. It was her money. I didn't care. And I was teaching people about everything. I mean, I was, I, I just studied every kind of liqueur. I just, I became the best bartender. I was, my sister would come to me and she would say, she didn't drink. And she didn't need to. And, uh, and she goes, Sammy, you're, you're getting people drunk. And I'm like, of course I am. I mean, what are you supposed to do? She goes, Sammy, there's such things as ice, you know, mixers. I'm like, oh, the heck with all that, you know. And, I mean, it just, well, we split. And then we also, I helped lose the restaurant for her and her bar. And, um, so at that point, uh, so that ended, and uh, that blew up, and we blew up. And I ended up working at this place called the Village Cafe, and this was the end of all ends. And during this time, I had destroyed a lot of my family, and I had gone in and out of their lives so much. And, you know, um, for years... Uh, I have to tell you all, I, I don't really know the dates. I don't know what year I got to Richmond. I don't know what years. I, I know when I got sober, I heard John Lennon died, and it broke my heart, you know. I wasn't aware of time. I lost 
I lost a decade. I honestly have lost time. And when I got, um, when I got over to the Village Cafe when I started working there, it was during the 80s, and um, I had received a letter. It was typed from my family. And uh, in that letter, they had uh, killed me off. And in the Jewish religion, what they do is they rip the sleeve and they sit shiva, it's called in the Jewish religion, and you're dead. And what I did with that letter is I threw it away because that's what I did with everything that I couldn't deal with. I threw things away. I threw you away. I threw bills away. I threw friends away because I couldn't do, do that. I couldn't handle it. But what it did inside of me is it, something died inside of me. Something died. And when I came to you people, I was a shell. I was dead. Dead. So when I was working at that village cafe, it was another bar. I was, by that time, I had become a junkie. I was drinking daily. I had been putting up a needle up in my arm at least a hundred times a day. I, um, I was drinking. I had become such a lone wolf that I hadn't seen a person in my small apartment. And this is where, you know, in this little teeny efficiency, I had been there. No one had seen. I hadn't had a friend in years. Um, no one had seen that in years. Um, in the big book, it talks about in Bill's story how he would see himself in that mirror. He would point. I would glance at myself once in a while. I would see myself, and I swear I saw the devil. I would just curse myself, and I would see it. I, I understood that in the big book. And I would think myself, you are, you're, you're sick. I knew that I was insane, but I had no idea what was, what was going on. And um, my physical appearance was just, I was a mess. And... Um, what happened was my boss had set up, someone had been stealing from my boss. Can you believe that? <laughs> so what he, did, he, what he did to try to catch this thief is he put up cameras in the, um, in the restaurant to catch this thief. And uh, so he put up the cameras and, um, and he didn't tell anybody. And so on a Friday, it was on a Friday, he calls me into his office and he sits, sits me down and this is how long ago it was, it was a VCR. He takes the VCR tape and he puts it in the cassette and he shows me stealing from the register and I denied it was me. <laughs> Now, he looked right at me and he said, Sammy, you are very sick. You need help. And I said for the first time, I mean, I just looked at him. All I could do was look at him. Because, see, I used to think that I was invincible, that I could do anything and not get caught. I used to think I had the best survival skills. I did. And my thinking was, I'll just take my poker chips and move to another table. 
That was my thinking. I can go anywhere and do anything. He just looked at me and he just said, you're sick. And he let me go. He didn't call the police. He didn't do anything. He just let me go. I went home that night. I went back to this place that looked just like I did. My little apartment was trashed. Trashed. I went into my car that was trashed. I had retread tires. I'm very good at changing a tire, by the way. I can change a tire. I have, I have skills. I'll tell you another one. Um, but my apartment looked like I did. I had, was wearing long sleeves. It was in August. And I hadn't changed clothes in so long. I was wearing a headband. I was a hippie. I had been a hippie since the 60s. I hadn't changed clothes. I was a free spirit. I was a, I was a child of the 60s. I had feathers in my, flowers in my hair. They were dead. But I had them in my hair. But I hadn't bathed in so long. I was just trashed. Everything in my life that was good and clean and decent was gone. I was dead. I was dead inside. I was having seizures by this time. I was having alcoholic seizures. I was having seizures, and I was by myself. I was sick. I was dying and didn't know. I went home that night after he let me go, and I get to, the, um, I get to my apartment, and uh, I didn't drink. I didn't do anything. I just went to sleep. I just went to sleep. I woke up the next morning. I woke up. I woke up. Something had happened to me. And I know today that it was the hand of God that had touched me. Something had happened to me. And I didn't know what it was. But I picked up my phone. Here's my other skills in life. I didn't have a phone. I just had, you know, I had a phone and I spliced it together with someone else's in the apartment. I have skills. Um... And I picked up the phone and I called my best friend's sister who had gotten help somehow, some way, for something. I don't even know. I just picked up the phone and called her. I know that someone had gotten some help somehow. It's funny how we get here. And, and she said, Sammy, don't move. I'm coming over. And for the first time, I let someone in that apartment that was just trashed. And I let her come into my apartment, and she took me to treatment. And for you, I have to tell you all that I was happy to go to treatment. I didn't know what I was going to treatment for. I didn't even know where I was going. I just told her to take me away. Something had happened to me. And I went to treatment for 28 days. I went to where my home group is, in Tucker Pavilion at Chippenham Hospital. And I went to treatment. And I was very fortunate because I had a uh, counselor who believed in the power of God, who believed in the power of the program, and who believed in the power of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what he did is he led me to you people. He told me I had a week to get a sponsor, so on the seventh day, <laughs> I got a sponsor, and I will tell you all, I've had the same sponsor for the 17 years, and she's still sober. I have kept that woman sober. 
I will tell you, I was not. I was a selfish, self-centered little brat when I got here. They told me in treatment that I was emotionally immature, and I stomped my feet and cried like a baby. How could you talk to me that way? I couldn't believe they talked to me that way. I was so emotionally immature. Um, when I got there in treatment, they told me that I, they said, I want you to look to the left and I want you to look to the right because only one of you are going to make it. And I was like, I am so sorry. I could not believe that everybody was going to be relapsing. I knew I was going to make it. I did. I knew. I knew that I was going to be there. I knew it. I was thirsty for this. I was thirsty for the knowledge. I was thirsty. They said that. They gave me a prescription before I left that treatment center. They told me I had to trust God, clean house, and help others. And if you're here tonight, I am going to tell you, I'm going to tell you that you don't ever have to drink again. We have so much hope here. I came in and I was like a baby. I wanted it. I didn't know what it was, but I wanted it so bad. I would have done anything you people would have told me to do. I was just fortunate because I grabbed onto a woman who had, who had it. She believed in the power of God and the power of Alcoholics Anonymous and the power of you people. And I grabbed onto her shirt tail. And what she did for me is she opened up her home for this person who had nothing. I had no family. And I cried for years about that. Every time the word family was mentioned, I was like, oh, my God. It was all, I was like, oh, my God. You all have family and I don't. And she said, you know, this may be true. Your family doesn't want you. That may be true. But we, you have a family now. You need to set aside all that. You can get sober regardless if you have a family or not. You can get sober regardless of anything. So we started in the big book. We started from the very beginning of the big book, and we did what the big book said. And I couldn't read at the beginning. I had lost all reading skills. It had evaporated. I don't know where my reading skills went. I was like brain dead. It had gone. So we did that. My sponsor was really big on believing in doing the steps from the get-go. She didn't believe in waiting a year or two years or whatever. She just believed in doing it. And I was stupid. I didn't know any difference. And I just did what she did. And I did what she did. That was the key. I just did what she did. And she told me the most spiritual thing on my body was going to be my feet. My feet was just, just keep on walking. Just keep doing. And so that's what we did. And um, I want to tell you that a, a couple of amends and a couple of things that, are, that were so important. I was a whiner. I whined so much at first. And um, she didn't care about me whining as long as I kept doing what the deal. She didn't care. She goes, she didn't, she didn't care. But um, my sponsor really believed in 
um, making amends. She believed in financial amends. She believed in all this stuff. And um, I started making amends immediately to the guy that I stole from at the restaurant. And I started making payments to him. I didn't have a bank account. It took me seven years to make all my financial amends. But I started making them immediately. And um, I couldn't have a checking account. And so I had to make money orders. So I was sending money orders off to this guy that I stole from, from the uh, restaurant, the owner of the restaurant. So I would send him a money order. And after two years, the, um, the guy calls me up and he said, Sammy, would you come back and work for me? And so after two years, I became the dishwasher for that restaurant. For, and after 11 years, I became the owner of that restaurant. And I know a lot of you people have been there on y'all's way to Blackstone and to a lot of things. And uh, but my my husband and I just sold that restaurant, and uh, and uh, we've been very blessed. But um, my sponsor also made me make amends to my family, and I promise you, I did not want to do that. <laughs> Um, I had to make amends to them, and uh, they wouldn't talk to me, and so uh, I had to write letters. They would hang up on me, and uh, they wouldn't see me. So I wrote letters, and it took around two years for my mom to uh, graciously see me. And um, so um, my family, after two years, my mom and I finally got back together, and have this relationship, and I can tell you today that my mom is 89 years old today, and I talk to her on a daily basis. And it's just been a wonderful, wonderful gift that I didn't think that could ever, ever happen. My other members of my family, that's a little different. My brothers and sisters, after 15 years, my oldest brother called me. And uh, out of the blue, and he says, Sammy, this is your brother Joe. And he said, I think it's time that we talk and get together. And I said, of course. Now, that had nothing to do with me, guys. Because, see, I had nothing but hate in my heart. I'm a person that was, didn't have a forgiving bone in my body when I got to you people. I didn't understand anything about forgiveness. The nut doesn't fall too far from the tree. I didn't even know how to have forgiveness in my heart. Where did that come from? Years before, I would have gone, never. Where were you when I really needed you? And I always thought it was in their court. Why was it in their court? Why was everything in their court? Why was that going to happen? And see, when he called me and I said, of course, it it hit me like a ton of bricks. It was in God's time. God knew when I was ready. God healed my heart. God knew I was ready. And when I met my brother for the first time, and I, I got to meet him, and I say meet him, because when I have fear, when I was a child of fear, I couldn't open myself up to anybody. I was too fearful to look someone in the eye and to have a relationship with anybody. You know, guys, it takes a lot of courage to be a sober person. 
It takes a lot of courage to do what we do. It really does. If you really understand the word courage, it means enlarging of the heart. It takes a lot to do what we do. I do this not because it it gives me the rewards. That is a grace, what I get today. I do this because it's the greatest thing. The rewards are good. But I do this because it was given to me freely. It was given to me. I don't know if I deserve all that, what I've been given. Where I came from, the light that I've been given, I came in here with this much fear, this much darkness in my life. I can't even begin to tell you, the darkness just overshadowed everything. And over the years, the darkness has gone down and down and down and has just been replaced with nothing but the spirit of light. I find joy in almost everything I do. I don't have, I don't have worries today. My light, life is light. It shines today. And the things that I carried when I came into you, I carried shame and guilt and remorse. And everything was so heavy and I felt bad. You know, when I cried, I would go to prison. I got, I've been doing prison work for 15 years, and I would go to prison, and I would hear, you know, a girl had killed her dad, and her, their family was still coming to see her, and my family, where were they? I mean, everything was just pathetic in my life. You know, I didn't do that. I mean, I just, like, I was two years sober. I was like, everybody's got it, and I ain't got it. I was just whined all the time. And... You know, when my sponsor would say, lift your head up, you have it. It's here for you to take. It's here for everybody. All of us has the power to help people. I sponsor a lot of women. It's not because I'm so great. It's because I'm available. I'm available to help anybody. People call me up and I said, sure. Uh, Sure, I'll do anything to help anybody. Because it gives me a light that I I can never pay back. Why did my sponsor open up her house to someone like me? She didn't know me. I understand today. When I owned that restaurant, I hired every drunk I could. (laughs) My poor husband, and he hated it. He goes, Sammy, just no mass murderers, please. (laughs) People gave me that chance. People gave me a chance left and right. Why did they do that? Why do you people say, take my hand? Just take my hand and we'll we'll walk through this together. Why do they do that? Why do we do that? The love that we have in these rooms, we know, we know where we've been. The light that, you know, my sponsor, I would look in her eyes and I knew she knew. I knew it. I knew. I used to think that I was the worst person in the whole world. No one could possibly have done what I've done. And I know today that you've been where I've been. You've, you've gone where I've gone. I wouldn't give up this for nothing. The big book tells me 
that I suffer from a spiritual disease. If I fail to enlarge upon my spiritual condition, I will go back out. And I don't know what. I don't know what it is that it would take to get, to get me to go back out. But I'm not going to stop doing what I'm doing. I'm not. I see it. The chances today that uh, it's only, it used to be, I, I know that I'm really into the percentages, but it's 8% of the people make it today. 8%. That's so small. I like being where I'm at today. I do. The light is so great. That darkness was dark. I love Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm grateful. I couldn't even spell the word before. But I'm grateful for all the actions that I have taken and that you've shown me, that you've shown me. And I'm grateful to be here this weekend, and thank you so much for letting me share.